I have Dan Angelo Russell on the record saying that Byron Scott is an idiot, and he would tell that he he took the longest route possible to get back to the bench whenever he got subbed out of games. always seems to get involved, doesn't he? I'm telling you, too many coconuts have hit him right on top of the skull. Well, I think uh, Anthony will be a great acquisition. He can do it all. Avery, whose show is this? Welcome, everybody, to the Anthony Irwin Show. I am Anthony Irwin. Today on the show, we have a really fun guest lined up. He is of Bleacher Report. He wrote a book on tanking, which Lakers fans have a little too much experience with, to be quite frank. Jake Fisher, uh, thank you very much for hopping on. How are you doing today? Thank you, man. I'm doing well. How are you? You know, I've, I've, I've moved on far enough from the Lakers <laughs> foyer into into uh tanking and stuff and and so just reopening some of these wounds might i might cry at some points of this of this episode we'll see how it goes uh but yeah that's that's kind of where i wanted to start i i'm i want to start kind of broader we'll go into the lakers stuff and then we'll and then we'll break off into some more general nba stuff but tanking as a concept it was like this huge taboo word with sam hinky mm-hmm. and the process and Daryl Morey, you know, him leaning into it as well. And now there are teams that are doing it, maybe not so brazenly or whatever, but it's, it's just become part of the NBA. And I'm kind of curious, you know, from your tracking of the concept from those days where it was all anybody really wanted to talk about to now, why is it just accepted? Like Sam Hinkie must be livid that he has, he's no longer allowed to work in the NBA and everybody's just like, yes, yeah, yeah. it's just how things go. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I'd, I'd honestly argue that teams like OKC and Orlando and Detroit and Houston this year tanked more baldly and brazenly than Sam <laughs> ever did, to be honest. But right. I, I think it came – I mean, the book exists, and and the title is it's Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And, and you know, that's – Built to Lose implies that it, it's a strategy exacted by the people who are building these rosters, right? But it wasn't mm-hmm. just Sam Hinkie. And at that time, all those analytical minded executives were coming to power. We had Rob Hennigan in Orlando. We had Ryan mm-hmm. McDonough in Phoenix, Pete D'Alessandro in Sacramento, David Griffin comes to power in Cleveland. You know, all these analytical minded executives kind of stemming from Daryl Morey and Sam Presti and Danny Ainge even is kind of like the real godfather of all this, having mm-hmm. overseen Daryl in Boston first. They all kind of the numbers proved what history has always shown that dating back to the 50s and the 80s and the 90s. Teams who win championships, pretty traditionally, they have multiple All-Stars on their roster. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do the most efficient you know, team-building strategy possible to going from the middle or the, or the bottom or wherever you're starting to get to the top, the best way to do so is through the draft. Primary, that, that's the easiest way. It's the most, mm-hmm. um, the most unblocked path to do so. And if you do draft those guys, you can look at you know, the, the Miami Heat was a great example back then where they draft Dwayne Wade, they, they, they build a contending team around him, and it's enough to draw LeBron and, Dwayne, and Chris Bosh from free agency, and the mm-hmm. Heat are running the league at the time that all these executives are coming to power. So they all kind of agreed 
you know, we're not going to beat Miami anyway. And this 2014 class with Wiggins and Jabari Parker and Joel Embiid and Julius Randle on down was considered to be at the time the best class since 2003. So all those factors lined up. And I think this concept of hope and this more streamlined conversation we're not having about team building, it's now allowed this strategy to be, to come into the mainstream and, and be an accepted form of roster construction in, in, in the mainstream. It's hard for me to, it's, I don't think it necessarily has to be an either or kind of a thing where you either build the way the Lakers did, where LeBron just wants to come to the Lakers and Anthony Davis wants to come play with LeBron. And then you have the role players who want to play for the Lakers and with those guys. Yeah. Or like you're saying, building through the draft. And obviously Lakers fans are going to say, well, we prefer what they just did recently. Like this was, we didn't have to watch the team be that terrible. And we, we, we were just, this was way more fun to just fall into LeBron. Uh, whereas that isn't really a path, an avenue that is available to the vast majority of NBA teams out there. Nail on the head. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, for those, for those analytically, analytically driven minds who really do throw themselves fully into tanking and, and given the response to Rob Palenka and his building of this Lakers team, is there, is there like a, is there, is there animosity between those, those, those GMs who have to build through the draft when they look at a Rob Palenka or they look at Pat Riley when they were able to build the Miami heat, when, when, when free agency is, is something is a viable way to build a team those those GMs who can't necessarily build that way, do they look at those other GMs as like, man, that'd be that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, I, I say the book is a bunch of different case studies of the same abstract where you know Philly is is the is the bold example in in that time period where they 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 just tore down a, a middling roster and were bad and bad for a couple of years and, and, and really swinging moves on the margins. Um, you know, Boston, they moved on from KG and Paul Pierce probably a bit too early, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, they flamed out in Brooklyn, and they got a massive haul back that turned into Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown that has set up, you know, obviously they've crumbled a bit of late, but they made three out of five conference finals, and they did a pretty damn good job of building a team around those guys before it's kind of... We don't, you know, we don't compliment the, the Boston Celtics on this. Well, it's gone to crap. It's gone to crap. But <laughs> the, Lakers, the Lakers were in there because, like you said, they had the largest margin for error of anybody. You know, I, I, as you probably know, as well as anybody, from 2012 to 2017, that five-year stretch, the Lakers had the worst record in the entire league, and mm -hmm. they still signed LeBron in 2018 anyway. <laughs> like, most teams don't have that margin for error, and that's why I thought the Lakers were really interesting to include, being that they had the same situation. I mean, obviously, they were going back and forth with Boston all throughout the, the, the la last half of that, um, you know, 2010 decade. decade. Mm -hmm. And they still said, no matter what, like, we're building around Kobe. We don't care that he tore his Achilles and then he hurts his knee and his shoulder and all this other stuff. You know, mm -hmm. we're building around this guy because that's what we do. And they ended up inadvertently getting into the tanking conversation because of that. But it didn't matter anyway because LeBron and then Andy Davis wants to come to play, like we just said. So I think all these other smaller market teams especially, but even bigger markets like Houston's a huge market, mm -hmm. right? They're like the fourth, fifth biggest media market in the country. But James Harden requests a trade to Brooklyn, and they're automatically right back in the situation of the guy with the worst team because we're not getting a guy in for agency anyway. So I, I think what your, your point is, I think, very emblematic of this theme all across the league for teams that aren't Brooklyn or the Clippers or the Lakers or, you know, even the Knicks maybe even this summer in for agency.
do you think do you think that dichotomy that juxtaposition between you know where the lakers are what what is available to them and the small markets thing it, you have kind of an uh, a unique perspective on league health like i just had howard back on the on the show last week and we were discussing how ratings i don't think should really be the end all be all for for the health of the league i i think the health of the league should actually be interest in good teams no matter where those good teams are located yeah. and and because there is player infatuation with large markets or player infatuation with playing with each other right uh because of those things you do kind of feel like there are there are probably fan bases out there who feel like they can't win so what, what would you say to a fan base who feels like they can't win and even if they do draft James Harden, or even if they do draft whatever superstar it is that they draft, that player might leave. There's, there's already whispers about Zion Williamson potentially signing his qualifying offer. So those fan bases who feel like we have to build through the draft. And then even then we only have seven years to, to convince this guy to stick around. What do you say to those fan bases to, to, to actually continue to, to show passion for this league? It's an issue. And I think, you know, a big side effect of all the analytical minded executives coming to power, like we've talked about throughout this, is it's, it's streamlined the conversation about team building and roster construction to even the most casual fans out there. And mm-hmm. it's been great to drum up interest in the offseason, this whole 11th month news cycle that we talk about. And it's fun for fans to be able to Photoshop Dean Willard into their jersey and say, right now you know, it's Luca because of the, <laughs> the Cato report. Yeah. Exactly. And like, that is, I guess, good for fan engagement, but it's also really devalued the actual value of the games in the regular season. And to to your point about when the league is at its healthiest, I think it's when the majority of teams fan bases want to pay to show up to that arena that night, thinking that any given night, they've got a shot at winning that game. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, um, you know, flawed logic and that it'll never really happen. Right. I mean, traditionally throughout the league's history, there's always bad teams, but I, th- I think even still, you know, a 30 win team or a 28 win team being the worst team in the league, that's obviously much different than a 17, te- a 17 win team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that the league's got, I have a situation that they need to reckon with here. I think that's why they're, you know, really thinking about creating a midseason tournament. I mean, I reported a bleach report a couple weeks ago that, the G League next year is absolutely planning to institute a start of season tournament thing where you know, they'll, break the, they'll break the league calendar basically into two seasons where mm. everyone will do a little tournament and then the top four teams will be in a four-team final four and there'll be prize money and all that type of stuff. Like, look at coaches' challenges and uh, – um, um, I'm blanking on another example. Which but Rule changes, yeah. Rules in general, the, the like – we, the way the history works of the G League experimenting things, if, it, if it's successful and people like it in the league, it comes to the big level pretty soon. Like we could mm-hmm. see a midseason tournament thing in the next two, three years, honestly, from conversations I've had with people in the league office and, you know, top officials and team front offices. Like I, I do think that we're trending that direction and it's absolutely stemmed from wanting to generate more interest in, in the regular season. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they need to do something. You know, I, I just think we just saw it this year where where teams I think it was kind of unique to the season because the last season happened so soon before the season kicked off and all that uh, for some of the teams. So you saw a lot of teams basically and players and superstars say, look, we are just going to try to survive this season. I don't care how many games that we miss. 
we're just going to try to get to the playoffs. And it still didn't work for, for a lot of superstars anyways, in terms of staying healthy. I, you, you mentioned the, the Lakers, you know, trying out and, and, and you use the word inadvertently tanking. Yes. And I think that's a, that's an important word. It's an important descriptor here in, in discussing what it was like when they were tanking there, because it never really felt, it never really felt like they were all in on tanking. They just did a lot of things that a tanking team would do. Like, yeah hiring Byron Scott to, to teach a bunch of young kids and, and, and employing Kobe Bryant for $40 million over two years uh, after he blew his Achilles. So he did a lot of things. I think it was, I think uh, uh, Zach Lowe kept calling it like shadow tanking, right? He was just, he was just like, we're tanking, but, but you don't know it. And, and I'm kind of curious, like from, from your sourcing, your reporting and, and writing this book, which again, it's built to lose how to how the NBA's tanking era changed the league forever. Um, you 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 reported on a few of the details of of that tanking experience for the Lakers. Was it something they were ever comfortable with? Like was it was it something that they that they ever really believed was a long term viable solution to building their team? I think obviously. Everyone knows that that 2013, that 2012, 13 season was supposed to be a glorious year in, in Hollywood, right? The, the whole Dwight Howard trade, the sign and trade for Steve Nash. This is going to be fun. SI cover. Like it was supposed to be a thing. And that it, season never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and very quickly, you know, derailed everything, especially when Kobe tears his Achilles. And I, at that point, I mean, I think it was very similar not to, you know, bring up old wounds and, and, that, and that are opening, you know, present day ones too with, you know, now there's another 30 plus, you know, wing player who's all of a sudden starting to have lower body injuries and oh, his, great. <laughs> his uh, mortality is starting to look legitimate. Like that was a real thing with Kobe at the time too. We're mm -hmm. talking his career, obviously. I don't want to convolute anything, mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the Lakers still from reporting I've done. I mean, I think also a big factor at that time was the fact that Jim Buss passed away mm -hmm. and you know, Mike, Mike D'Antoni's brother, Dan D'Antoni was an assistant on that staff. And he gave me this great quote saying that Dr. Buss was the, the like the control tower overseeing everything and, he, and every single department reported to him. And when that, you know, when that figure was gone, it really sent a lot of uncertainty throughout that franchise and one thing that everyone did agree on though was that Kobe was Kobe and that in order to get the next generation of superstars to join him to take the mantle from him they needed to prop up Kobe and and, and have them join him and 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 show this loyalty to him both financially um with that that two-year contract that we can definitely get into um and also in, in terms of trying to build the contenders around him like the conversation we're hearing now about golden state with steph and portland with dame about maximizing his his championship window and they thought that message would get out there to other stars and, and maybe it did like lebron you know still came in 2018 i think lebron watching kobe's big retirement tour in 15 16 played a huge role in him realizing like i can come here and be honored and be the next part of, uh, of of this Lakers legacy, but there was a lot of complications that came with it being that they never did get that guy. And I think mm -hmm. a big part of it stemmed from they had real designs to try to get LeBron and Carmelo in 2014, like you mentioned, and they just shot themselves in the own in their in their own foot by giving Kobe that two year, forty eight and a half million dollar deal. When I've got people, Lakers officials 
telling me for this book that they believe Kobe and Rob Polinka would have taken half that number. So not only would he potentially have taken less money, but they signed it early in the season in that November, which prevented them from having the cap space to have two max cap spots. Mm -hmm. So they could have waited to sign Kobe and obviously use the cap gymnastics to go over the cap over the tax to re-sign your own player. But they, they only had one max cap spot available. And from my reporting, I do think Carmelo was down to join the Lakers on a discounted deal, but LeBron wasn't. He told mm -hmm. his agents told every single team that they met with in Cleveland that summer, you know, we're signing the max because LeBron realized from Miami, like, you know, we have to maximize our own earning potential. If LeBron James isn't getting his maximum salary, how can any player in the NBA right. go to their, their ownership and say, you know, I deserve my maximum salary too. So it just, the captain gymnastics prevented the Lakers from ever getting LeBron in that and Mel at once. And that kind of, you know, then kickstarts this whole couple year period where they just start filling the roster with one year deals and hoping they can get back into free agency every summer, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, it didn't work out. Right. Right. I, I wanted, I wanted to ask about LeBron and Mello specifically based on, based on what you have heard uh, in the years since then, like one of the, one of the talking points back then was that LeBron was a little iffy about playing in Kobe's shadow. And, and you're saying that Mello was down, which I could understand. I know he really wanted to be on one of the coasts. Um, if, if, Kobe signs the discounted contract and they do have those two uh, max spots to be able to offer to Melo, to be able to offer to LeBron where they don't have to take discounts to come join Kobe. Would they have been okay with playing in, in Kobe's shadow? Cause we saw what that looked like with Kevin Durant playing in, in yeah. Steph's shadow and it didn't look great. I think there was definitely a start, a, a cause for concern at a certain point when they didn't get a meeting with Kevin Durant, Mm -hmm. I think that was another big wake-up call, but I think all Lakers officials definitely started to worry at times that, that Kobe's shadow was definitely too big for a lot of his people. They didn't want to come in and be, you know, his second fiddle. I mean, look at I mean, this is a situation that I think gets talked about a lot when we have this team building conversations. Like these stars are all stars for a reason, and the one common thread they have is they're competitive people who you know think they're the best guy on the court and to their credit, like you can't be that good in a competitive business without thinking that way that happens in investing and in Silicon Valley and whatever. This is mm -hmm. happens to be sports where you're on a stage where everyone can see you and have podcasts debating your rankings and all that type of crap. Mm -hmm. So, and we saw with Kyrie in Cleveland, right? Like as much as he won a title with that team, he did not want to be considered the number two to LeBron. He wanted to be partners and co-stars. And that's mm -hmm. what he has in Brooklyn right now. And I do think the fact that Kobe's legacy was reigning over everything, I do think that played a big role in, in having a lot of other superstars say, you know what, I don't necessarily want to come in here and be the second fiddle to Kobe being that he also is aging and who knows yeah. what his role is going to be moving forward anyway. They were, they, were, they were going to be playing second fiddle to a player who might not be as, or as good as them. Like that would be, it's a really awkward kind of situation there. Yeah. The, the whole LeBron mellow thing is, is also interesting in, in this regard. Obviously LeBron eventually comes to the Lakers anyway. And one theory, one pervasive theory out there is that, you know, that Kobe contract, while it hamstrung them, them at the time, uh, long-term superstars are saying, well, that loyalty suit to a superstar is actually kind of nice. We saw Danny Ainge ship out Kevin Durant and Paul George and 
Uh, we saw the treatment that Ray Allen got when he went to Miami and he went back to Boston and, and, and whether it was from the players, the fans and, and, and whatever, but I'm kind of curious if, if, if you think that, that Kobe, what I, you, I believe you called it a golden parachute contract at the, in your book, uh, that, yeah, that golden, yeah, but someone told me it was called. <laughs> yeah. I think that was Clay Moser, right. Told you that the, 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 they called it the, the, the golden parachute for the executive on, on his way out or their way out. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 that term is interesting to me because it is a, a, you know, Kobe was more than just a superstar to the Lakers and most superstars want to see themselves, especially now in the, in the era of superstar empowerment, they want to be seen as more than just, the superstar they want input on coaching decisions and and oh. and they want input on players and all of those things so you saw kobe kind of have that and then on his way out of the out of the organization get that last deal there do you think showing that kind of loyalty to kobe paid dividends potentially in in landing lebron you know so many years down the road i do think so i mean you want to talk about decision-making behind coaching hires. I mean, I have it pretty much on the record in the book that they hired Byron Scott for those last two years just to kind of be like a steward for the final two years of Kobe's deal. He was a sitting mm -hmm. duck coach from the second they hired him, but they did that, you know, really, I mean, he wasn't developing those young guys. Like I have details in the That's book. That's for damn sure. <laughs> Daniel Russell in the book called Byron Scott an idiot. Like he has, I have Dan Angelo Russell on the record saying that Byron Scott is an idiot. And That's he would tell me that. He, he took the longest route possible to get back to the bench whenever he got subbed out of games so that he didn't have to even <laughs> walk out Byron Scott. Like, that's a big thing. And I think like walking around the building, it's just like <laughs> he would yeah. do, he would take, he, I think he, I mean, I, I actually like saw, I went and looked at like a YouTube, like an old, old game. Like, if you go back and watch old games, it's very obvious when D'Angelo comes out of the game, he's like going to the very far end of the court to not have to high five Byron Scott. Like, <laughs> there's definitely calculations at play in every franchise that they do to try to cater towards superstars. And, but I will say, you know, Jim Buss and, um, and Mitch Kupchak were, you know, steadfast and saying we're going to get a star like we're the Lakers we're going to get a star and yeah they're tinkering and the moves they made to try to set that up for years didn't work out but I do think that their belief was kind of vindicated when LeBron resigned in 2018 or not resigned signed signed and the second he does sign you know sure enough is automatically those rumors about Anthony Davis and that's the testament of this all this whole thing too right you need to get a star to get another star mm -hmm. and I, I think you're right. I think they did benefit inadvertently from, you know, pleading to Kobe and placating Kobe and all that type of stuff for years, but they obviously didn't benefit for the for a big period of history. <laughs> Initially. And, um, you know, sure. Like you said at the top, maybe Lakers fans will take that, but that's something that a lot of franchises just can't afford. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious. We, we kind of touched on the era of, of superstar empowerment and that's where we kind of find ourselves right now. Do you think in some way it was response to tanking? Because so one of the things that fair or unfair, I kind of tie to tanking and, and the analytical minds in, in organizations is treating players like assets, not necessarily it, it's it. I'm not going to say I'm not going to go so far as to say that it has completely dehumanized athletes in, in the sport, but it is certainly it's a lot easier for for 
you know, players to be moved and, and fan bases to move players and contracts and draft picks and all of those things, as we have all become kind of pseudo GMs away from, from the team. Do you think the superstar empowerment era was kind of a response from players to say like, no, we, we, we still run this league. You, you, you can come up with all the numbers and, and, and this uh, path to success organizationally if you want, but at the end of the day, like if, if Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving want to play together and if LeBron James and Anthony Davis want to play together, it's, it's, I think it's fair to wonder if, if tanking is, is still as viable as it was maybe a few years ago. Well, think about this. This, this is a thesis I pitched to a lot of executives and, and, and many did agree with me. Others were like, I don't know about that, but mm-hmm. I, I really believe that, you know, look at Philly, right? That their situation gets mischaracterized all the time. A lot of people say, oh, five, six years of losing. It wasn't. They really mm-hmm. bottomed out for three years. And mm-hmm. I think if Joel Embiid doesn't get hurt a second time, there were clear evidence that they were trying to build towards 2016 for agency and, and trying to get good then. Like they mm-hmm. hired multiple Texas staffers who had connections to Kevin Durant. They hired people who had connections to LeBron. They hired people who had connections to Kyle Lowry. Like they were definitely trying originally to build up in 16. But, you know, if you are willing to say to – a Joel Embiid or a Ben Simmons, like we're willing to punt multiple seasons because of the opportunity just to even have a chance to draft you. That's how valuable you are. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that doesn't then further show these players how valuable they are and right. how much agency they do have and how much, you know, the franchise's overall state of success does hinge upon that player being there and being happy and being healthy and being on the court and playing to his ultimate, um, you know, maximum potential. So I think that played a clear value. I mean, look at Zion. Like mm-hmm. you talked about the top. He has no, 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 there's nothing standing between him and realizing that I am everything for this franchise right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. David Griffin willingly going out publicly and, and willing to get fined to say some bogus comment that he got hurt because of fouls. And that's all that he's doing that to placate to Zion. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand how these players, how, how tanking didn't play a role in and in, in further making these players realize that we have a lot of say in this ecosystem. The NBA at the end of the day is a marketplace and a business far more than it is a sport. Mm-hmm. And I say that to people all the time that the actual, what happens on 48 between 48 and zero on the clock is like less than 1% of the whole, whole NBA behemoth. And I think, you know, a big factor of that now and, and that, being, I, I think, kind of getting exposed and, and uh, written about and reported on is, is as much a testament to these players feeling like they can do kind of what they want. And I think that's been a big, um, I think that's been propped up by tanking. Absolutely. Do you think, do you think tanking can still be as successful or building only? Well, nobody really builds. I think that's another misnomer. I think that people have, associated with tanking and building through the draft is this notion that like, like Philly was only going to have success through Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid without adding any, like that they ever thought that that was how they were going to go. All of these teams, you know, they wanted to draft at the top of the draft as often as possible, but they also understood at some point you need to bring in a veteran to be able to win during that, during those draft and teach those young players how to win during their, during their windows. But but so tanking as a concept and, and building through the draft as a concept, now that these players do have as much agency over the league as they do, do you think we'll still see it in, in the same way? Or, or do you think, 
you know, how, how are, how are those analytically inclined GMs and executives, how are they adjusting to the way that the league is running now where, Hey, superstar, a superstar B and in Brooklyn's case, superstar C all want to play together. Yeah. That's just how that's going to go. Well, as we've seen, that's only really happening in a couple markets. Like we talked about before yeah. too. Right. And look at this very year, this 2021 class is ironically considered to be the best class since 2014. Mm -hmm. And we saw, OKC, Detroit, Houston, Orlando all do stuff that was far more brazen than anything Hinky ever did. Sending Al Horford right. home for half the year and John Wall sitting courtside healthy watching Kevin Porter Jr. take his job and the Piston just waved Blake Griffin. And now he's starting you know, on a team that uh, um, ended the up finals. You know, within the finals. So, I mean, I think it's alive and well. And I think when you're, especially when you're a small market team who you can't benefit from those superstars saying, I want to go play with you, unless you're Milwaukee, right? Drew holiday resigns because they drafted Giannis after the combo. They didn't get Giannis mm -hmm. number one, but they drafted him. And that's a, that's a, that's a really obvious, um, you know, example of you draft your superstar and other all-stars will want to then come play with them. So I think we're going to keep seeing it as long as, the lot, as long as your draft position is dependent on your record, we are going to see teams eventually lose games on purpose. You know, the Thunder obviously were doing pretty hot. They're right in the mix of that playing tournament up until Shea Gildas Alexander twists his ankle. And all of a sudden, Al Horford's going home for the half of the year, and the Thunder are plumbing down the standings. Like, mm -hmm. it's. Uh, it, so you think it'll get more brazen? Like, you think you think the response to the superstar empowerment, it'll. it'll It'll keep getting louder and louder. They just won't use the terminology. They won't attach tanking to it. They'll just oh, no, we just, you know, darn. Al Horford had vacation plans in the middle of the season. Yeah. I don't know if it'll get worse, but when there's expectations that there's a big pool of players at the top, like this is a five-player draft, right? That's what mm -hmm. everyone says. So the Rockets, they're still guaranteed a top five pick. They have a hundred percent chance, no matter what the lottery odds are right now, they have a hundred percent chance of getting a top five pick. So mm -hmm. they might even find themselves at a, at a, a better position. Number one, because then they don't have, they don't have to make that choice. This, the, this, the best guy just falls to them. The mm -hmm. best guy that of that, of that group. I mean, you could, you could pull 15 NBA GMs right now and they'll all rank those top five guys, Cade Cunningham, Suggs, Mobley, um, Jalen Green and Kaminga, they'll all rank them differently. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you if you get the fifth pick, you don't have to make that tough decision that could ultimately cost you a job, just like yeah. we talked about, you know, before yeah. too. So, I still think even a fourteen percent chance. You know, I mean, I, I was talking to people with the Bulls the other day who, you know, they have a, only a twenty percent chance of keeping their pick that they traded for Nikola Vucevic, but. You'll take that when you look at, you know, oh, we traded two first and this for Vucevic. Well, it's actually only one first and the other first, we've got a 20% chance that it's still being a top four pick. Like that's stuff that the Bulls are excited about. So mm -hmm. I think people are still going to be willing to play the lottery as long as it, as the odds are still what they are. I mean, people play the actual lotteries knowing that the, the odds are terrible. So I guess you, you yeah. keep doing your thing. Uh, do you think Sam Hinkie ever works again? Does he want to work in the NBA again? I don't think he does. I don't want to speak for him uh, definitively, but conversations I've had over the years with him and people around him, um, I think you know, getting realized or him realizing that even when an ownership group says to you, we're giving you carte blanche to exact this plan and you got a couple years to do this, the rug can get pulled out from under you and you're fired just like that. He didn't get fired, obviously, but the writing was on the wall and yeah. he got pushed out. 
and mm-hmm. um you know, by I, the I, nba like front <laughs> by the nba to a certain extent like adam silver kind of stepped in and said hey uh here's a colangelo <laughs> you know yeah well if you want to get into that i can give a quick synopsis of like basically josh harris the Sixers owner and adam silver they have connection through adam silver's roommate in college was a partner um with uh josh harris at apollo global and john adam silver went to duke and who was the duke head coach for ever mike krzyzewski who was team mm-hmm. usa his olympic coach who was run by brian uh, jerry colangelo and you know he comes into power and starts operating and you know jerry's big ultimate dagger to sam was you know, they wanted to push forward this idea of bringing in a co-gm which is unheard of in the league like obviously right. we've got presidents and their executive VP and their assistant GM and all that type of stuff. But pretty typically outside of the owner, there's one guy who's got ultimate final say before that stuff gets put on the owner's desk. And to give someone who had probably the most agency of anybody in the league swinging deals left and right, all of a sudden to say, we want you to work with somebody else. And one of our preferred candidates is the guy who we brought in son, like the writings on the wall. So I, I think the fact that he has this venture capital fund he's trying to do and other investments, Silicon Valley type stuff, and he's teaching business in Stanford. I, I don't think he, I don't think he has interest in joining the league anymore. I think he, uh, I think he lived his dream and, and did, and he also was in, in Houston for eight years before he even got to the Philly. So mm-hmm. I think he's on to the next chapter of his career and his life. That's too bad. I think he was, I, I thought he had really good ideas. Uh, it, it was just, a branding issue. Pablo Torre is probably kind of responsible for, for Sam Hinkie's downfall. All right. Um, just quick segue here before we get you out of here. We have two things. One, uh, as we, as these postseason, this postseason kind of moves along, we're going to start getting into rumor season. You're starting to see uh, the leaks and counter leaks from the less successful teams uh, trying to explain why so-and-so wasn't responsible and so-and-so should have been responsible or should be held more responsible um, and, and then, uh, you know, that is going to give way to teams starting to plan for the future. And I'm just kind of curious, you're, you're, you're really plugged in throughout the league. And do you think this is going to be a very act, like based on what you're hearing so far, you think it's going to be a very active off season, or do you think most teams are just going to try to take whatever data that they can possibly assemble from, from a very flawed and very weird season and just try to run back their 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 general concepts that they had this year. Yeah, I think a bunch of teams are reckoning with their identities, and, and those are the ones right now that have head coaching openings. I mean, mm-hmm. Indiana, Portland, and Boston, I wrote about it today for Bleach Report. Like, all three of those teams, they're facing a pressure with this, co- with this coaching hire. They need to hire somebody who will push that team further into the postseason than the previous people did before them. And especially with Indiana, like they need to, they need to have some stability there. Um, and I think there's other situations. I mean, everyone around the league expects Mike Budenholzer to be out in Milwaukee if the Bucks don't reach the finals. So that opens up another opportunity and there's ripple effects with these other ones. Like I, I reported today that Nate McMillan is a name that people are whispering that Boston really has their sights set on, even though, everyone does expect him to resign in Atlanta. Like let's say Nate McMillan goes to Boston. That opens up a whole another coaching search in, in Atlanta. I mean, I reported that Rick Carla potentially has eyes on Milwaukee's opening if that does happen. And obviously Tim Cato is reporting today, you know, sheds a lot of light on, on why Carla might have interest in leaving that situation. So yeah. 
Um, I mean, that would then open up a coaching thing. And that, like, there's so many ripple effects and dominoes that need to fall, and a lot of them are depending on postseason success. Like, if Brooklyn, if, if Brooklyn's health doesn't, you know, keep them uh, or prevents them from beating Milwaukee, you know, that that preside that presents Philly and Boston, two teams that have a lot riding on this postseason. You know, a great how much more exponentially greater a chance at winning the title versus, you know, the Clippers. There's talk about if they can't get past Utah, what that means for that front office. Like a mm-hmm. lot is still to be determined, but I think there is going to be a lot of change. And the free agent market, interestingly enough, is going to be controlled by the New York Knicks, who were obviously the big story of the year. And they flame out pretty brilliantly in the first round. So <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot still to be determined. Um, but I expect there to be a lot of fireworks where, we're in we're we're in uncharted territory where I think the league is spinning faster than it ever has, and you know, maybe we're getting to the point where it's flying really close to the sun and everything might explode. But um, right now, I think it's spinning at a at a pace that we're not used to. But it's still you know not off the tracks yet. But it's definitely spinning really fast, and people are playing catch up left and right. It's even going to be a shortened off season because the NBA is trying to reset and get back to their typical. Uh, season schedule. All right. Last thing before we get you out of here, everything, this is something we do with all of our guests uh, here on, on, on my show. Uh, I am kind of known for on, on Twitter for my terrible layup in summer league that Harrison loves to throw on there as, as often as he possibly can. That's my, or one of my most embarrassing sports moments. So do you have a, an embarrassing sports moment that, that you can think of off the back of your head when, when, in your playing days or, or if you had playing days or whatever? Um, it's not embarrassing being that people found out, but I was a very <laughs> bad baseball player in my uh-huh. youth and I only played one year. It was in third grade and I was basically stuck in right field in the league that had all um, right-handed right-handed hitters. <laughs> ball never came to me. And one day the coach took it way too serious. This was third grade baseball. Yeah. And one day, Bobby Cox, that head coach was gone for a, whatever. He wasn't there. So the assistant coach very nicely decides to put me at third base for one inning. Mm. And I really had to pee as we start to warm up <laughs> for that inning. So I peed my pants to stay in the field and be there for my team. Um, not for my team, for myself. Yeah. I want my yeah. moment at third base. And um, I don't remember how I performed, but I definitely remember like the gray pants I was wearing and seeing like a darker gray line start to trickle down my thigh. <laughs> so that is something that, uh, you know, it's embarrassing to say, but I don't think anyone really noticed. So yeah. I don't think it's embarrassing in the moment. But there that's you go. one of those, the, that's one of those times where you don't want the ball to come to you though, because that's when people notice, right. Then they're looking at you and like, Hey, what's, what's up with your pants? That's yeah, but I wanted the ball to come to me so I could make my play and prove that I had some talent. Even though I didn't have any talent, I was always only really a good basketball player. But <laughs> teach their own. <laughs> so that, that, that coach, was your coach Sam Hinky tanking and putting you yeah. at, at third base? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being a sport there. That's a great story. It's yeah. better than Aaron Larsoul telling me about the time as a kid that he blew his knee out, I think, twice in one game as a kid. And then Howard Beck told me last week about how he tried to Euro step around Tim Bontemps and blew out his knee. So you have the top spot for, for stories uh, on, on the show. There you go. go. Thank you. All right. Well, again, check out the, check out the book built to lose how the NBA is tanking era changed the league forever. Uh, I'm, I'm about midway through it. It's fantastic to this point. It's really, really good. 
You guys are going to enjoy it as well. And then check out all of his reporting and his writing at Bleacher Report. One more time, this was Jake Fisher. Jake, thank you very much for hopping on. Thank you, man. The book's available, Amazon, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Triumph Books, wherever you want to buy your books. And uh, I got a partnership going with La Terrain Watches, L-A-T-O-U-R-A-I-N-E. If you buy a watch, you get a free copy of the book too. So please support. Uh, as Anthony said, you're not going to be disappointed if you cop a copy. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Check out uh, Lakers Lowdown tomorrow as I react to some of this stuff and then on, and all of that stuff as well. So have a great one. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks, man.